All right, gang, let's dive into God's word. If you've got your Bible with you, turn to Luke chapter 19. That's where we'll be today. As we look at this moment in the, on the church calendar, which we call Palm Sunday, which uh, the Bible records as the triumphal of, G- of Jesus into Jerusalem. This is a week where we take time to reflect upon uh, what Jesus was doing when he entered into Jerusalem that kicks off Holy Week and the whole week of events that took place in Jerusalem leading up to ultimately Jesus' crucifixion on Friday and then his resurrection on Sunday. So we take some time every Palm Sunday to reflect upon the meaning of this moment in Jesus' ministry. And so we'll do that again today. But let me pray for us as we prepare to do that. Lord, I'm really thankful for all the ways that you show us that you're worthy of worship. We're very thankful that you have made it so that when we worship you, our lives are best aligned uh, and we experience fullness and joy in life and peace and meaning. Um, You didn't have to make it that way. You could have required worship of us and not made it what was best for us, but that's not who you are and that's not what you revealed about yourself. You have shown us that that you are so good that when you call us to worship you, the ultimately worthy one, it makes our lives the best version of what they were intended to be. We walk in fullness when we walk in worship of you. And so we thank you for that. Uh, Some of us have not yet seen that, Lord, and we ask that you would open our eyes to see it. If I could be so bold as to make that request on behalf of my friends here. I pray today, Lord Jesus, that you would draw us into your presence and show us your worth, your great, magnificent worth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, my prayer this week for you all, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, for those of you who are not, uh, my prayer has been that this, this today's sermon would be, for those of you who are followers of Jesus, would be a reminder of the worth of Jesus, would be like a cool cup of cold water on a hot day, that it would just be a reminder, yes, that's the one I worship, and that's why he's so worthy. And for those of you who are not yet followers of Jesus, my hope has been and my prayer for you has been that God might show you the ultimate worth of Jesus, that you might see that he's worthy of your affection, he's worthy of your followership, he's worthy of really laying down everything else to have him. He's a great treasure. And we hope that you will see that today. That's been our prayer for you this week. Let me read Luke 19, starting in verse 28. The kids read it for us, but I just wanna read it again just to make sure our eyes are on the text here. Starting in verse 28. It says this, it says, and when Jesus, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, uh, those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. 
So this is Luke's telling of the story of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the Sunday we recognize as Palm Sunday. Now we, we call it Palm Sunday in the church because Luke doesn't talk about it here, but the, uh, many of the crowd were waving palm branches. Now the reason Luke doesn't record that reality in his version, his telling of the story, is because Luke is writing to a Gentile audience, not a Jewish audience. And for a Jewish audience, palm branches represented something about the coming of the Lord. There was something in their history religiously where when they were waving palm branches, They were declaring something about who Jesus was through their waving of those palm branches. Luke, because he's concerned with a Gentile audience that would have never heard about that, does not actually even record that that happened. So there are four different tellings of this story. Now, they all are the same telling of the same story, but they focus on different events. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, our four gospel writers, all write about this event. Jesus coming down off the Mount of Olives and into Jerusalem, stopping in the village of Bethany and Bethpage to pick up this donkey, this colt, if you will, and then moving into Jerusalem. Now, a couple of historical things that we need to know about what's taking place here. And Luke is recording, John does, Matthew does, Mark does. As Jesus is coming in, there are a number of things that are happening that are sort of uh, causing the excitement of the crowd. And you may not be familiar with this, so just let me kind of help you get acclimated into the situation. See if we can't put ourselves in the story a little bit. When Jesus is coming, he's fulfilling a number of messianic prophecies. Now, what that means is the Old Testament had a lot to say about who the Messiah, this rescuer that God would send to the, to the nation of Israel, who he would be and what he would do. And so the nation of Israel looked at a lot of these prophecies and said, okay, we're waiting for someone who does these things. And so when Jesus is coming down off the Mount of Olives, just even coming from that direction, he is fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 14, 4, that the Messiah will come off the Mount of Olives and come down into Jerusalem. So he's coming into Jerusalem from the right direction. Then he picks up a donkey on the way and gets on the donkey. It says it's a donkey on which no one has ever sat or some call it a colt. Now that's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. That's another prophecy that when the Messiah comes, he'll come into Jerusalem and he'll come riding as a humble king, not as a conquering warrior, but as a humble king on a lowly donkey. So Jesus knows that. He picks up the donkey and he heads into town. That's why the palm branches begin to be waved because they're looking at Jesus and saying, aha, he's got the donkey. He's coming off the Mount of Olives. And the crowd gathers around and they begin to shout the praise. They shout praises to God. They shout Hosanna, which again, Luke doesn't record Hosanna. That's a distinctly Jewish phrase. But in the other Matthew and Mark, they record that the crowd is yelling Hosanna, which means save us. It's a request coming directly out of the Psalms. But the, the statement Hosanna doesn't just mean save us as in please save us. It means we believe you are able to save us. So it's a statement, not just of hope, but a statement of what they believe to be a reality. Now, as he's coming in and the hosannas are being shouted and glory to God in the highest. That's a quote directly from that, that, that thing that they yell in praise is directly from Psalm 118. It's a messianic psalm talking about who the Messiah would be and they are essentially declaring by saying this that they believe he's the Messiah. Now, all the gospel writers, except for Luke actually, focus on two groups of, well, focus on one group of people. They focus on the crowd. And you're probably familiar, if you've been in church a while, you're probably familiar with the Palm Sunday sermon. They go something like, the crowd thought he was coming to rescue them from Roman rule and to release them and to be a king who was gonna fight a great battle. And so they're singing their hallelujahs to him and praising him, but they misunderstand what he's up to. And that's, that's accurate. That's an accurate statement that that's all going on. Matthew, Mark, and John all are very intentional about commenting about the misperceptions of the crowd. In fact, John says in John chapter 12 that the, that the crowd is 
praising him because he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, that's going to be important for us in a moment when we compare it to what Luke has to say, okay? But they're praising him because he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And what John is saying is essentially they're not really worshiping Jesus because they're necessarily... Uh, seeing correctly who he is, they're worshiping him because they're thinking, look, if the Messiah is going to fight a battle, who better to follow in a battle than someone who can raise the dead? It's a pretty good idea, right? If you're going to get behind a king, get behind a king who can, when you get killed in battle, can just go and back up, right? That's, that's fantastic. That's John's comment about what the crowd is doing. Now, Luke, interestingly enough, does not focus on the crowd. I don't know if you noticed that. So, Luke focuses on a different misunderstanding. He's not focused on the crowd's misunderstanding. He's talking about the disciples and comparing them to the Pharisees, the religious leader. And Luke's version of this story, the people who misunderstand, he's not denying that the crowd misunderstands, and he's not denying even that the disciples probably misunderstand. But he's actually giving the disciples credit for their worship of Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is worthy of worship, and they're offering him that worship. And who doesn't understand that? the religious leaders of the day. Because what do they say when the crowd and the disciples here in Luke's version, it says the full, sort of the full group of Jesus' disciples were singing along with the crowd. Hosanna, praise you. A declaration from Psalm 118 that you are the one, you are the rescuer. So they're declaring it. The crowd is declaring it. And the Pharisees do what? They say to Jesus, rebuke them. Silence them. They're saying something inappropriate. They may have in mind that it's a bad idea to proclaim that a king is coming into town when you're under Roman rule. That may not go well with the Romans. And so they're, shh. And what does Jesus say? If they were quiet, the, the, the rocks, the very stones would cry out. In other words, you, most religious of all people in your day and age, ones with the most knowledge about this Torah, the ones who are the keepers of the religious traditions, you are so blind that you cannot see what even an, an inanimate object can see. I am worthy of praise. That's Luke's point. It's a simple one, right? Jesus is worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship. That's the simple point that Luke wants to make as he tells the story of the triumphal entry. The disciples praise him. They declare his worth. The Pharisees are unable to see it. They are blind. Even the created order recognizes that Jesus is worthy of worship. So friends, here's, here's our goal today. We just want to spend some time thinking on why Jesus is worthy of worship. Can we do that? Why is our Jesus worthy of worship? Well, there's a lot we could say about that, right? I mean, we could go on and on in any one of 16, 20 different directions about why Jesus is worthy of worship. We could talk about, you know, his role as creator. We could talk about who he is uh, in terms of his wisdom and his teaching. We could talk about his mercy and compassion, his character trait. We could talk about all these different things when we talk about why Jesus is worthy of worship. So we might ask, well, what, what does this text tell us about why we should talk about Jesus is worthy of worship? And I don't know if you caught it in verse 37. Let's throw it back up on the screen, gang, if we can. In verse 37, in case it flew past you, remember that it says this. Jesus is drawing near on his way down off the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. So in other words, the disciples' praises are coming forth because of all that they had seen him do. So what we're meant to see in this moment is the disciples are almost doing a, hey, do you remember, do you remember when we saw him calm the storm? Do you remember when Jesus, that guy who couldn't walk and he made him walk? Do you remember when the lepers came? And he, do you remember that? 
It's as if they're, they're just almost just having a flashback into all that Jesus had done. And so that's what I wanna do today. I want that to be our cue for what we want to examine today. So let's look at some of the mighty works of Jesus that he did that call us to praise. And not just what he did, because all of it can essentially be seen as proof that he is who he said he was, right? Every single one of the miracles, the Bible tells us again and again, John in particular at the end of his gospel writes, all these things that I'm recording about what Jesus did that were miraculous and you know, no one else has seen anyone do anything like this, all these things that he did, he did to show that he was the son of God. And so in one sense, that, that's why they all exist. They all exist to show us that Jesus was who he claimed he was. But I think there's more to it. Because I don't just want us to see, yes, okay, Jesus raised the dead. Yes, okay, Jesus healed the leper. Therefore, he must be the son of God. That's a great conclusion to draw. It's the right conclusion to draw. But I want us to see the implications for our lives a little more closely because the specificity, the uniqueness of each of the miracles that Jesus does says something about who he is that then has really radical implications for how we live and how we think. And that's what I want us to try and draw our attention to today. So let's just walk through some of them. We can't cover all the miracles of Jesus. There's too many, right? There's too many great, mighty works that Jesus has done. But let's, let's touch on a couple of them. All right. Now, as I say that, I'm going to do something other than talk about the mighty works of Jesus, right? Because here's what I need to do. Before we get into all the mighty works, I need to remind us that the number one reason that Jesus is worthy of worship, even though what they're doing here is worshiping because of the mighty works, the number one reason that Jesus is worthy of worship is just because he is. Now, do you know what I mean when I say that? Because I want you to capture this. Jesus is worthy of worship. If he had never done any of the things that I'm about to tell you he did, if he had not done a single one of them, simply by virtue of being of the nature of his existence, he would command our worship. He would require it and he would be worthy of it. So when I ask the question, well, why is Jesus worthy of worship? And then we begin to talk about all the different things that he's done that point us to his majesty and his worth and his goodness. I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that even if he'd never done them, he would still be worthy of worship. You got it? Everybody with me? That's hugely important because here's the deal. Works of power, mighty works, are meant to be the gateway into worship. Here's what I mean by that. You'll notice that as you walk with Jesus over time, do you still request his mighty acts on your behalf? Yes, you, and you should. Do you still pray for healing and for his hand to move in power in the lives of others? Yes, and amen, you should do that. But what you'll find is that your praises and your prayers center more and more on the person of Jesus and less and less on the work of Jesus. That it, as like a spine to your worship, you begin to find that your prayers revolve around simply the joy of who Jesus is in himself, that he is a great treasure. Now, go back to what I said about John chapter 12 and what he described, how he describes the crowd's reaction to this triumphal entry. And he says that they're worshiping Jesus because they watched Lazarus be raised from the dead. And John means that not as a compliment. He doesn't mean that as like, hey, the crowd's got it. They figured it out because he saw Lazarus raised from the dead. What John means is they're really only here for the show. They're really only here for the power, which is why a week later, many possibly of that same crowd are either going to be gone and a new crowd is in place or some of that same crowd is gonna be standing before Pilate yelling what? Crucify him. Right, that's like one of the great mysteries is how does Jerusalem go from everybody all whipped up about the Messiah coming into town to crucify him? 
How do we get there? And John means to tell us that that's happening because there was something missing in the crowd's understanding about who Jesus was and what he was doing. They were really there because they'd seen him do this work of power of raising the dead. But now go to Luke's account and think about the disciples. And in that moment, as they were counting all the mighty works of Jesus and praising him for them, do you think one of the mighty works might be that he raised Lazarus from the dead? That might be one of the things. And Luke is not condemning the disciples for that. He's actually applauding them for that. You're correct to worship Jesus, and the Pharisees are missing it. They, they don't see that. So the question we have to ask, if I'm, if I'm being linear enough here, the question we have to ask is, what's the difference between the disciples and the crowd? If the disciples are worshiping Jesus, and one of the, things they would, one of the mighty works that would cause them to worship is the resurrection of Lazarus, I would think, and the crowd is worshiping because of the resurrection of Lazarus and being indicted for it, what's the difference between the two? The difference is faith. The difference is a belief in Jesus. And here's what I mean when I say faith, friends. Faith is not, faith is not, at least not a saving faith, is not a mental agreement with a set of facts. Faith is being fully satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Faith is being fully satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus Christ. That's the essence of faith. It's the, it's the heart's cry that says, Jesus, you're all I've ever wanted and more. I could never ask for more than what you are. The difference between the disciples and the crowd is that yes, the disciples are gonna make mistakes. They're gonna flee in the face of persecution. They're gonna do a lot of dumb stuff. But at the end of the day, their hearts are satisfied in Christ and that's what keeps them moving forward in him. And the crowds fade away. And that's why I say that works of power are meant to be our entry into worship. All of our worship that is, that is born out of the power of God is meant to transition into worship of the person of God. Maybe, maybe a way to say it is this. We might begin by worshiping him for what he's done. We must complete by worshiping him for who he is. For his beauty, his majesty, and his goodness. That, does, that doesn't mean that his mighty works don't fuel our worship. They do. That's what we're talking about here. It doesn't mean we shouldn't ask for his mighty works. We absolutely should. In fact, he's honored when we ask him to do powerful things. Do you know that? You should ask him for healing. You should ask him for wholeness. You should ask him for miraculous movement. He does that. He's mighty. Ask him for it. It honors him when you say, there's no way I could do this. Can you please rescue us? Do it. But friends, at the spine of your worship should be an adoration of who Jesus is. Prayers like the prayer of Moses in Exodus 33. Do you remember this? The prayer of Moses in Exodus 33 when he says, God, show me your glory. He's not asking God to do something. He's asking God to let him gaze upon him. Or the prayer of Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, right? When he says, I want to know Christ. I really think everything else in Paul's ministry stems out of that simple statement. In Philippians 3, I, I want to know Christ. All, all the hardship, all the suffering, all the travels, all the proclamation of the gospel among a people who have never heard it before, all of that stems out of Paul saying, I want to know Christ, and when I'm on mission with him and when I suffer for him, I know something of him that I would have never known before. So I willingly endure it. I willingly engage in it because I want him above all else. 
You guys remember the Sermon on the Mount? You guys familiar with that, Sermon on the Mount? In this section of it we call the Beatitudes, the beginning of Matthew chapter five. It's the blessed is the person who, right? Blessed is the person who does this or is this way. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. A lot of you have probably heard those before. Do you remember this one? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They'll see God. I want you to think about that. What is the reward in that statement? It's seeing God. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, look, if you, when you fight, not if, when, when you fight against temptations to think impure thoughts or set your eyes on impure things, you need the weapon of Matthew 5 saying, wait, wait a minute. Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Well, this is what I do when I fight temptation. I go right back to Matthew 5 and I say, do I want the fleeting pleasure of setting my eyes upon that thing or do I want to see God? And when you ask the question that way, whatever this thing over here that looks so tantalizing and appealing and whatever promise it seems to be making, all of a sudden seems really dumb in comparison to seeing my maker. Being able to set my gaze upon him. Oh, I want to be pure in heart. Don't you want to be pure in heart so that you might gaze upon the king? Jesus is worthy of worship. First and foremost, because of who he is, not because of what he's done. Now, he gives us this beautiful, wonderful gateway into the praises of the king that are his mighty works. Can we talk about those? So let's look at the first one. Just going back through the book of Luke, that's all I did. I just went through Luke and looked at some of the things that Jesus did in the course of his ministry that these disciples would have been thinking about. The first one is this. Jesus is worthy of worship because he calms storms. Now, you guys probably remember this one. The disciples are on the boat, on the Sea of Galilee. The winds and the waves kick up. The waves are pretty fierce. Looking. These are fishermen, so they're probably not super intimidated by a choppy sea. Uh, and, and this one gets pretty bad, bad enough that they are panicked. Jesus, rescue us. We're going to die. And Jesus comes up out of the boat, and what does he say? Where's your faith? Where's your faith? Which is a, that's a tough thing to be told in the midst of it. Now, I used to, now here's the deal. I used to, growing up, I mean, I, I grew up in church, so I, I grew up around this story, right? Hearing this story, and my gut reaction to this always was, yeah, what a bunch of wimps, right? And then I went out on Lake Erie one time with my wife's uh, uncle. And he's a sailor, and I, I'm sure he's probably a pretty good sailor, and I'm sure the vessel was seaworthy. But we got out there and it was a beautiful sunshiny day and I'm telling you, a storm rolled in faster than I've ever seen a storm roll in. And I'm talking about black clouds, rain pouring down, lightning in the distance. This is one of the Great Lakes, Lake Erie. So this is a big body of water and I felt like we were smack in the middle of it and as far away from the shore as we could possibly be. And the waves start just rising and they are coming over the edge of the boat. And I start thinking to myself, oh, this is what they meant. I'm like, okay, I'll never, I'll never make fun of them. I'll never think less of them again. Because we're, you know, he's tacking and the boat's turning and I'm like down there, I can touch the water down here. And I'm thinking to myself, this is frightening. And somewhere in the back of my mind, where's your faith? I'm like, this is hard. It's hard to have faith in the midst of storms, isn't it? It's hard to have faith in the midst of storms. Jesus walks out of the bottom of that boat and he walks into our lives and all the winds and the waves that cause us such immense fear. 
And he says a word. Be still. And there's complete silence. Because the winds and the waves know the voice of the one who made them. Jesus calms the storm so that we would know that he has power to drive fear out of our lives. And we might ask the question, well, how does he do that? How does, how does fear get driven out of our lives? And 1 John chapter 4 gives us the answer. Do you remember this one? 1 John chapter 4. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out what? Fear. So what's the active ingredient there? Perfect love casts out fear. In other words, what he's saying, when you believe that you are loved, fear gets driven out of your heart. That's what he's saying. When you believe, so the catalytic element there, all right, the love of God is the foundation of that. Because you are loved by God, fear is eliminated by your, uh, from your life, but you have to believe that you're loved in order for that to work. It doesn't just happen. We don't just come to Jesus and all of a sudden we go, oh, okay, I don't have fear anymore. Jesus is calming the storms to show us that he's worthy of worship because he is able to drive fear from our lives with his perfect, perfect love. Undying, unbreakable, unshakable love. Now it's, friends, it's hard sometimes to believe that we're loved. These are, I had many of you in my mind this week as I was thinking about this, because some of you have walked through life and not had a good demonstration of what it means to be loved unconditionally, uh, with a love that will never fade and never walk away from you. You just haven't had that. You haven't had someone who said, look, no matter what, I'm in, I'm, you, I'm with you, I'm for you, and I love you. And others of you, perhaps, and so let me say, so it, it's hard to hear the preacher guy get up here and say, yeah, you're loved by God. And you're thinking, well, what does, that, what does that look like? What does that mean? I'm not sure I buy it, right? And others of you, because this is what happens too, you've been in church so long uh, that somebody says to you, yeah, God loves you, and you, you felt like that was like, Lesson A, and you left it behind, and you're on to like lesson M now. Can I encourage you? There is no lesson M. It's just lesson A and all of its implications over and over and over again. Deeper into lesson A. A dash one, A dash two. Just, you're loved by God. Live as a loved person. You're loved by God. Here's what that means for fear. You're loved by God. Here's what that means in terms of your future. You're loved by God. Here's what it means in terms of trusting that you can make these kinds of choices. You're loved by God. Here's what that means about how you should treat your spouse. You're loved by God. You with me? You won't go far in your walk with Jesus unless you begin to believe that you're loved by God. He calms the storms to show us that he loves us and that he's, he's able to do that. He's able to drive fear out of our lives with love. This, this was brought home to me yesterday uh, as I was, well, actually before I go there, let me say this. Here's what that means. Belief then, faith, belief is the active ingredient, right? What that means is that unbelief, unbelief that you are loved is the hammer that drives the nail of fear deeper into your heart. You have to fight against unbelief, specifically the unbelief that you are, unbelief that you are loved which is believing that you are unloved, right? This is what was brought home to me. I, was, I took my family to Philly yesterday. We, we hadn't ventured out to those parts since we moved here a couple years ago and said, hey, let's go, let's go see Philly. And so we went to um, Franklin Institute with the kids. They loved it. It was great. They went to, we went to uh, Reading Terminal Market, right? And then we went and got a little Pat's uh, cheesesteak. Absolutely. Some of you are Geno's people. I don't know the difference, Okay. 
So we did that. We stood in like a line around the block for a Pat's cheesesteak. Well, at Reading Terminal Market, we were, it was earlier in the day and we were getting lunch and um, had one of those funny moments, which I tend, tend to happen to me. I don't know why, but they tend to happen to me. Um, and guy just walked up out of the blue. This is a packed place. Have you been there? I mean, it's like massive and it's just wall-to-wall people, right? And the guy just walks up and he goes, hey man, that's a really nice shirt. I was like, thanks. <laughs> and, and then it was like, it, it was like um, how to ask for money 101, I think, because he was like, so I was wondering if I could borrow a few bucks. And I was like, oh, you could have skipped the shirt thing, man. That's okay. Like, you know, thanks. But I was like, sure, no, no problem. You know, so a few bucks for some food. Uh, and just in that moment, as I'm handing him the few bucks, I just, the, the Lord just, the Lord's spirit just said, look, tell him, tell him I love him. Like, don't forget. And so I said, hey, just so you know, I just want you to know that Jesus loves you. He loves to provide for you. He loves to care for you. He loves you. And you would have thought I said the strangest thing this man has ever heard. His eyes just were like, okay, thanks. You know, and then I'm, I gotta go. So, you know, he, he moved on. And here's what dawned on me. I thought about that later in the day. We live in a world made by a God who declares in 1 John chapter 4 that he is love. We live in a world made by that God who sent his son as a demonstration of that love. And now in that same world to tell someone that God loves you evokes like a, you just said the craziest thing I've ever heard, sort of a response. It's hard to believe that we're loved, but we are loved. And it's such a pivotal thing to hold on to. It was just driven home yesterday as I thought, man, that was really weird for that guy to hear. And look, I know I'm a weirdo, right? And I say things that other people don't say, but... It was, it just struck me. I was like, that shouldn't be that weird to hear. Somebody should have told them this before. Maybe they, ha- maybe they have. But part of me thinks, man, I don't know. If you've heard that before, I don't think that look would have been on your face. Jesus is worthy of worship because he calms storms. The next one. Jesus is worthy of worship because he makes the blind see. You remember this story? Luke 18. Jesus is coming into town. There's a lot of hubbub and a lot of commotion. Blind man sitting by the side of the road and he is asking, what, what's going on? What's all the commotion? What's, like, somebody says, Jesus is, Jesus is coming. Now we don't know what this man has heard about Jesus or knows about Jesus. But in that moment, he just cries out with desperation, right? And you get the idea that he's really making a lot of disturbance because they're like, shh, come on. I mean, right? He must be, he, he must be, Jesus, Jesus. Don't be afraid to shout that name, by the way. If that felt awkward to you, try it sometime. It clears the cobwebs out. It's awesome. <laughs> right? They're like, shh. Not Jesus. He's not bothered. He just comes on over. What can I do for you? Make me see. See. Faith has made you well. He sees what he has never seen before. Jesus heals the blind, not just to prove that he's the son of God. He heals the blind to show us that he's able to show us the true nature of things. Do you know that? When Jesus heals the blind, what he wants you and I to see is that he is able to show you the true nature of the way things are. If you've ever been around someone who's new to the faith, you'll, you'll, you'll hear this moment happening and it's just the sweetest and the best thing ever to watch this happen. People who have just come to Jesus will often talk about how 
It's as if they are seeing the world through an entirely new lens they never knew existed. It's as if they had a gray filter on the glasses and now everything is lit up and sparkling and shining. It's like everything is new. Where did this come from? I never understood that you could see the world this way. I never knew that you could think this way or that this way of looking at how that situation occurred could even be possible. You need to be around people who are experiencing this because it's awesome. It's awesome when people are for the first time looking through the new lens of the goodness of God in Jesus Christ and they're seeing everything, all of it, through that lens. A Christian worldview is the only worldview that's able to make sense of everything in the world. Do you know that? It's the only worldview that's absolutely able to make sense of why everything happens that happens. Now, he doesn't tell us why everything happens, but when you come at the world through the lens of a gospel-centered worldview that says there's a good God who made everything and sent his son to redeem it because it fell away from him. When you look at that, it makes sense of our desires. It makes sense of our dispositions. It makes sense of our unrest. It makes sense of our doing what we don't want to do half the time. It makes sense of our relational conflict. It even makes sense of our suffering and our pain. Apart from that, apart from that worldview, everything is gray. Jesus is worthy of worship because he's able to bring into our lives a cohesiveness that allows everything that we experience and encounter to actually make sense. Next thing Jesus does is he makes the unclean clean. Jesus is worthy of worship because he makes the unclean clean. Three different times in the Gospel of Luke, you might remember this. Jesus heals lepers twice and he heals a woman who's been bleeding for about 12 years. She has an illness that's causing her to bleed for about 12 years. Now, the important thing to know about that is that these groups of people had been on the outside of society, unable to go to the temple and worship God according to Jewish law and unable to relate to others because if they were to be around them, it would make those people unclean that they had been around. If they touched them or had had sort of uh, socialized with them, it would make those people unclean and then they couldn't worship God. Now, I want you to think about being trapped in that kind of a life cycle. You are unclean, unable to be around others and unable to come and worship the God who made you. That's what the situation these people are in. And Jesus comes and he heals the lepers and he makes this woman who just touches the hem of his garment, just touches the hem of his garment, he makes her whole. Power goes out from him and she immediately is healed. Jesus makes the unclean clean. Now here's what that means for us. Jesus makes the unclean clean, which means he's able to take the outcast and invite them into a family, to bring acceptance into the life of the one who was never accepted anywhere else. The one who everyone pushed out and ostracized, the one who everyone rejected, the one who no one cared for is now at the center of the plan of Jesus. There's a reason he spent all his time with the people who everyone else rejected. There's a reason Jesus came for the poor. There's a reason Jesus came for the hurting and the lonely and the last and the least. There's a reason for that. Jesus is telling us everyone is welcome at my table. You come through me and you can come. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your class is. It doesn't matter what your intelligence level is. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you had great parents or poor parents. It doesn't matter if you thought you were the, everything the world ever wanted or if you thought no one ever wanted you before. You are welcome at the table of Jesus. Everyone. Let's just think about that for a moment. Let's just compare it if we can because 
take it in comparison to another worldview. Let's take Hinduism, for example. Right? Hinduism teaches uh, a doctrine of reincarnation. What that means is whatever ailment, sickness, whatever, cl- uh, if I'm born into a low caste or a low class, if I am the unclean, the reason I'm the unclean is because of something I did in a previous life. Well, what does that do? It means that there's no motivation for anyone to help me because I'm getting what I deserve. And I'll just have to work my way up the next time around. But Christianity says, if you've been dealt a good hand or if you've been dealt a bad hand, that's not because you're more or less loved. God has purposes beyond what you understand and every single one of you is welcome at the table of Jesus. He's able to bring you out of unacceptance and rejection and into a family, into the family of God. Last thing Jesus does, last mighty work that makes Jesus worthy of praise is because he raises the dead. Now I said before in John, right, that John looks at it and says, well, the crowd was looking and saying, well, he raised Lazarus, right? The disciples are aware that he didn't just raise Lazarus. He raised three individuals in his time, right? He raised Lazarus, he raised a little girl, and he raised a young boy. He raised all of them from the dead. In fact, when he did it, he would walk up to home and he'd be told, well, they've, Lazarus, he's been dead for days, Lord. Like, it's gonna be not real pleasant in there, you know? When he goes to the other little ones, they, they laugh at him. He says, no. So I'm, I'm gonna go and see him. Like, he's just, Jesus says, he's just sleeping. And they laugh at him. And he just says a word. And life is restored. And life is restored. Now, here's the thing. Christianity gets, uh, gets this kind of lobbed at it all the time. This idea that, I guess the way it gets summed up is this. is like, well, those people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. You heard that one before? The idea essentially being that like, we're so fixated as a people on what we're going to experience after this life that what happens in this life matters less to us. Now, one, that's not a good thing, right? God has called us to put our hand to the plow here and now. And what we do in this life very much matters. And so he calls us to live in a certain way in response to the gospel. But I want to offer this, at least just put a pin in that if I can for today and say this. The real true marker of every worldview, of every religious belief system is partly, yes, in what it can convince us to do here and now in terms of the way we live. But more important is what it promises to be able to do for us after this life is over. That's really the linchpin, uh, the most important aspect of any worldview. That, by the way, is why every religion, every world religion, teaches something about how you can have a better situation after you die, right? In Hinduism, it's one thing that you need to do, and then this will be your situation after death, right? A better reincarnated form, ultimately being released into, uh, into nirvana. That's the goal, right? In Buddhism, you follow the eightfold path of Buddhism and eventually you get released from reincarnation into the all Brahman, into the all soul where you're caught up and that's your eternal existence. That's finally sort of being actualized. In Islam, a, a, a certain version of paradise if you'll follow the five pillars of Islam, right? But here's the interesting thing. Of all those world religions and all those religious leaders, how do we know that what they say will happen after we die can, will actually happen? What guarantee do we have that if I follow the eightfold path of Buddhism or if I ascribe to all the tenets of Hinduism or if I do faithfully all the five pillars of Islam, what guarantee do I have that what they tell me about what will happen after I die will actually happen? The answer is I don't have any assurance of that. 
Now compare that to what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus who raises the dead and was raised from the dead. What does that mean? It means that when he tells us this is what will happen to you after death, we can believe him because he went through death and came out the other side. Only someone who's done that can promise you anything after death and have it be a reliable promise. You with me, church? Jesus has made us some promises about what life will be like after this life if we have faith in him and we can trust that those are true and good. Jesus is worthy of worship. Jesus is worthy of worship because he raises the dead. Now, as Jesus enters Jerusalem, he reminds us that he is worthy of our worship. So worthy that inanimate things like rocks in in his creation recognize it. The question for us is, will we join them in their song? Or will we be as the Pharisees? Or will we be as the crowd? That's the question in front of us. Can I encourage you to spend your week this week in praise and adoration of the one who is worthy of worship because of what he has done and ultimately because of who he is to fill your car with songs of praise, to fill your home with songs and declarations of praise, to prepare yourself to come then Friday and meditate upon the great cost of the cross that displays the worth of Jesus. And then, friends, prepare yourself because Sunday's coming. And we are going to shout it from the rooftops. Our God is alive. And he rules and he reigns and he's worthy of worship. Every shred of every moment, every affection, every part of my heart and mind belong to him because he is worthy as no one else is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, you are, you are worthy. And I'm very aware that as I say that, just like every Sunday, there are here, those who agree with that statement and there are those who, who would say at this juncture they disagree with it. And Lord, I would pray because no human words can do what your spirit can do. Pray that you would show us, reveal to us, in particular, Lord, to those who have yet to believe that you're worthy. Reveal your worth. Show it to us in a thousand small ways and in big ones too. We don't need you to to do or to be anything other than what you already are. We don't need to make a great sales pitch for you. We don't need to make things up about you to make you seem better than you are. You need no PR campaign. You are perfect in all your ways. perfect in all that you are, perfect in all that you do. And so we give you honor. We're gonna sing now, Lord. We're gonna sing to you and we pray that as we pray regularly that our hearts would be drawn near to you as we declare these praises, not just our lips, but our our hearts themselves. Receive, Receive the praise that you're worthy of. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand? Let's close our time together with a song.